Well, it's good to see you, all 21 of you, and those of you who I can't see but are there in spirit, <laughs> in Zoom land. Well, Kathy and I went to London a few years back, and while we were there, among all the other things that we toured and saw, it was sort of an off-the-beaten-path tourist stop that we enjoyed It was called the War Rooms of uh, Winston Churchill. It was basically the underground bunker in which he commanded, you know, his his part of the uh, of the British effort against Hitler and all that. And so they they went underground because obviously London was being bombed, and they had to keep the war effort going. And so they had a full command center underground, and you'd walk through and you'd look at the various uh, plaques that they had. And one of the museum plaques talked about the fact that Churchill was pretty persnickety as far as what he required of his personal secretaries. When he would dictate a letter, he would simply dictate the letter to the secretary who would type it as Churchill was dictating it. And then when he was done, he would walk over and pull it out and expect to sign it, and it was done. So there's like no you know, shorthand, and I'll type it up and bring it to you. It was, I'm dictating it, you're typing it down. And what made it worse a lot of times is he'd walk around you know, with a cigar in his mouth and mumble. And so the secretary couldn't always understand, and so she, if she didn't understand, she'd have to leave space and then hope that she could go back and sort of figure out what he meant and put it in by the time he came over and wanted to sign it. That was like... These are expectations that'd be pretty tough to live up to. Well, one time this man was applying for a personal secretary position, and Churchill's aunt saw this poor young man who was applying for this job, and Churchill's aunt went over to the potential secretary and said this. She said, quote, Remember that you will see all of Winston's faults in the first five hours. It will take you a lifetime to discover his virtues. You know, a lot of us don't have a lifetime with uh, an employer. But I thought that statement was, aside from being a little funny, uh, very telling into who we are as people because it doesn't take us long at all to find out somebody's faults, does it? And uh, it does often take a long time to find out others' values and virtues. Well, let's look together in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. We're continuing in our series on a message from each book of the Bible, and we're into the New Testament now. We've made it all the way through the Old Testament, and now we begin what we might call the downhill stretch. Only 27 books to go in the New Testament. Of course, each of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, have a different perspective That's why we have four Gospels and not just one. Each of the Gospels has a different emphasis. And you might, uh, they actually lay out pretty nicely. If you think of each of the Gospels as a cube, well, I guess a cube has six sides. Anyway, imagine a cube with four sides if you can. It doesn't really work. But anyway, we've got four sides, four perspectives of of Jesus. Matthew presents Jesus as the king as the king of the Jews. And there's a heavy emphasis in Matthew on the king and the kingdom, which we'll see as we get into it. The book of Mark, if you remember, focuses on Jesus as the servant. 
as God's servant. As uh, that famous verse, that even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Mark 10.45. The book of Luke presents Jesus as God's ideal man, or sometimes we just refer to it as the Son of Man. And then John, of course, refers to Jesus as the Son of God. So you have king, servant, you know, opposite ends, God, man, opposite ends. And so through all four Gospels, you get this multifaceted picture of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it would be an inadequate picture if we left any of the Gospels out. We need all of them. Matthew's focus is on Jesus as king. And in a, sen- in a sense, answers the question, if Jesus was king, why didn't the kingdom come? Because that's like what was promised in the Old Testament. And of course, Matthew's answer to that is, well, the, uh, the kingdom required repentance um, and Israel didn't repent. And so there's a big pause button on the offer of the kingdom, and that will be renewed later at some, uh, some other point at the second coming. So Matthew chapter 6, we're going to look at a part of the Sermon on the Mount today. And I love it, Jim, that you started us with the Lord's Prayer, because uh, that's a great way to begin, because that's a part of the Sermon on the Mount as well. Why did Jesus preach the Sermon on the Mount? You know, we've got so often we look at the Gospels as a patchwork quilt and we don't see the forest for the trees. Why did Jesus preach the Sermon on the Mount? Well, you remember Jesus had been offering the kingdom. And if we were to take the time to go through the first five, uh, four or five chapters here, we would see Jesus is preaching, repent, because the kingdom is at hand. If you want the kingdom to come, repent is the way that you... That you uh, get the kingdom to come. Matthew chapters 5 through 7 or the Sermon on the Mount focus on how you get into that kingdom and the standard to get into that kingdom or really the standard that God requires of all of us. He said that your righteousness has to be that better than the Pharisees, which most people in that day would think was impossible. Of course, Jesus saw the Pharisees as hypocrites, so it's not a big step up from a hypocrite. But then Then Jesus said, uh, you have to be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So uh, now all of a sudden, everybody's out. And of course, Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount with that great section at the end of chapter 7 where he says, basically, you enter through the narrow gate. That's how you get in. And he speaks of himself, basically, as that gate, that uh, a relationship with him is the way that it happens. So in Matthew chapter, I said 6, we're going to actually look at 7. But that's okay, you're close. Just look at Matthew 7, and we're going to start at the very first verse there. The best-known verse in the Bible used to be Matthew, I'm sorry, John 3.16. But these days, it's Matthew 7, verse 1. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. Isn't it amazing that that is all we usually hear of this verse? Um, It is our culture's trump card for tolerance. If they're going to quote a verse from the Bible, they're going to quote this verse. Hey, don't judge, you know, or or you'll be judged. That's actually from the Bible. Well, it is. I remember back in the 90s seeing an, an interview with Madonna in which the interviewer asked Madonna what she would say to someone who had criticism of her lifestyle. And she quoted this verse. 
It's our culture's trump card. Don't judge my life. Um, But this verse has a context. It's not just a verse by by itself. It has a context. Look at, let's let's read verse 1 and but continue into verse 2. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Notice the first word there of verse 2, for. I looked in several translations today, and I was thrilled to see that the word for is in most translations I could find. In fact, I couldn't find a translation that didn't have it. Not even the New Living Translation omitted it. It's there. Even in paraphrases, that word is there, and that is a good word to keep. Because it is showing, it is saying, Jesus is explaining, verse 1. Do not judge, he says, so that you will not be judged. Now, let me tell you what I mean by that. In the way you judge, you will be judged. So when he says, do not judge, he doesn't mean do not ever judge. What he means is, do not wrongly judge. If you're going to do it, do it right. And then he goes on to tell how to do it right. In the way you judge, you will be judged. So how would you like to be judged? Because you will be. That's how you need to judge others. The same way that you want to be judged. Well, I want God to be gracious to me. Wonderful. You be gracious to others in your judgment of them. And not just in your words, but in your heart. Because that's where the judging really begins, isn't it? He meant don't judge wrongly. He didn't mean don't ever judge. In fact, the word Jesus uses here for judge is from a word that means to separate. It's what a judge would do in Jesus' day to separate the issues. You've got right or wrong, or you've got legal and illegal, and the judge would be able to make a distinction or a separation on the issue and then make a judgment on that. He wasn't saying never to do it. He was saying never do it wrong. In fact, later in the same book, we won't turn there, but if we looked in chapter 18, Jesus talked about what to do when you you come across a Christian who is in sin and how you go about the process of restoring that person. And it requires a judgment. And again, you don't need to turn there, but just listen to John chapter 7, verse 24. Listen to John 7.24. Again, Jesus' words, he says, Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. So, is what, Jesus confused? In John 7, he says, Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. So in John 7, it's okay to judge. Matthew 7, don't judge. Jesus isn't confused. The context is essential of Matthew 7. He simply means when you do it, do it right. So let's have an application or a principle from these first couple of verses that's very obvious and very hard. And it's simply this, that God responds to us according to how we respond to others. God responds to us how we, according to how we respond to others. The standard that we use is the standard that God's going to use. And this doesn't mean heaven and hell. This This isn't a judgment of here's how you get to go to heaven. You just be nice to everybody and God will be nice to you. 
It's not a heaven and hell issue. It's an issue of fellowship. It's not a salvation judgment. It's a judgment speaking of personal relationships. Here's a great example. It's in the same context. Look back at chapter 6, verse 12. You're in chapter 7. Look back a few verses earlier to chapter 6, verse 12. This is the end of the Lord's Prayer. And it says, verse 12, And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the glory forever. Amen. Verse 14, For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. You see, same context, same principle, exact same idea. If you want your relationship with God to be healthy, again, this isn't a salvation forgiveness. This is a forgiveness of husband and wife, of father and daughter. There's nothing you can do to separate that relationship, but it's restoring fellowship. So you want your fellowship to be with God, to being good with God? Then make sure that you're forgiving others, because otherwise you're not in fellowship with God. This is what Jesus is teaching. And it's the same idea in chapter 7. You want God to deal well with you in relationship? You deal well with others in relationship. It's the same idea of fellowship. Listen to how Jesus said it in the the Gospel of Luke. Listen to Luke 6, 37 and 38. Christ said, And do not judge, and you will not be judged. And do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Pardon, and you will be pardoned. Give, and it will be given to you. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. Our Lord isn't saying that we don't need to be discerning, um, even or to point out sin in other believers' lives. The fact is, uh, we are to do that. We're just to do it right. So how do we do it right? Well, he's going to go on and and uh, tell us about this. But boy, we can do it wrong, can't we? I remember one time I was teaching in another context. It wasn't in this class, uh, thankfully, but it it was in another context. I I don't remember what the subject was, but I was talking about the passage, and it was kind of a hard statement. I remember it was a hard statement. And I immediately after I said the statement, this one guy gets up just loudly, briskly, gets up the I remember the chair slamming. It was one of those chairs that, you know, when you get up, it closes by itself. Chair slams. He turns and walks out the door. And I remember thinking, yeah, well, good, buddy. You probably needed to hear that. I didn't say that, but that's what I thought. Because as soon as I said, he comes back in two minutes later with a cup of coffee and sits back down in his chair. The guy wasn't in sin. He was thirsty. I couldn't have been more wrong in my judgment of this guy. And it's funny when, you're, when you realize that uh, you're the one that needs to be sitting out there listening rather than the one teaching. And boy, I'll tell you, today, as far as not judging and all of that, uh, this is not a message that I enjoy sharing, but it is one that, that we need to hear, isn't it? It's one I need to hear because it's one we all struggle with. The fact is we never know all the facts. 
We don't know why the idiot driver who cut us off did what he did. It could be that he just lost his spouse this week and he isn't really focusing. We don't know why the rude saleswoman did what she did, but it could be that she just discovered that she had cancer. How do we know that the Christian who just cussed didn't trust Christ two weeks ago and he has no idea how to live the Christian life yet? Wouldn't it be better that we just tap the brakes on judgment and instead uh, judge like we want to be judged and give people the benefit of the doubt? Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13 that love believes the best. Believes the best. Whether it's a relationship we know well or whether it's a total stranger. So again, God responds to us according to how we respond to others. And now Jesus gives an illustration of this in verse 3. Back in chapter 7, verse 3, he asks, Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? I would love to have heard Jesus share this. Because, you know, we're given the words here, but we aren't told how he did it. You can just imagine if he was a very, you know, vivacious and uh, he was such an effective teacher that he could have exaggerated, you know, what, what's in my eye and then talking about the plank, you know, that's in, that's in someone else's eye or, or my eye. Um, Christ, I bet they broke out in laughter when, when he shared this because it's so ridiculous. His logic is impeccable. And his illustration is memorable and even humorous. I like it. There was a five-year-old named Andrew who pulled out his kindergarten class picture and immediately began describing all the people in it. This is Robert. He hits everyone. This is Stephen. He never listens to the teacher. This is Mark. He chases us and is very noisy. And this is me. I'm just sitting there minding my own business. (laughs) Jesus is making a comparison that reveals to us that we tend to minimize our faults and we tend to maximize others' faults. Jesus says it is a speck in someone else's eye compared to a log that is in our own eye. We point out a very small issue in the life of someone else while ignoring a very large issue in our own lives. We tend to minimize or ignore our own faults. Now, don't name names and certainly don't point fingers. But do you know anybody that's got a critical spirit? Now, don't have to look around the room. You don't have to look across the room. But hopefully we can look inside ourselves because a critical spirit is like eating soup with a fly in it. It's no no fun to be around. They're no fun to be around, a person with a critical spirit. You can't do a job right, and if you did a job right, you didn't do it well enough. Something's always wrong. And a critical spirit is really someone, it reflects someone who is unreflective to their own faults. This is what Jesus is saying 
A person who is critical of others is unreflective to their own faults. Christ asked, why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye? It's a hyperbole. It's a little bitty thing. It's a speck compared to a big plank. In fact, the word that Jesus uses here for speck is easy enough to picture. It's just a little bitty small piece of something. It might be a splinter. Some translations refer to it. And the log or the beam, that word refers to the main timber that was used in building a house. So this is like a big beam. Imagine if we transferred it to your house or where you live. Imagine the main beam that goes across the main roof of your house, the top, the ridge. That's a big beam. And that is what's sticking out of our eye. I have a friend named Roger who used to be a policeman. Now he's in the ministry, which is really probably not all that different. And he says uh, there was a neighborhood one time that begged the police, the local police, to patrol that area because people kept speeding through it. And so Roger said, okay, we'll, we'll put some cars down there. So Roger was there. He stopped his first car, and it was the lady who was the head of the petition board. <laughs> oh. That's funny. Christ gives us here in verse 5 what ought to be some sober, obvious advice. Look at what he says in verse 5. You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye. Now let's just pause there for a second. Hypocrite. The word there for hypocrite is sort of a, a transliteration, meaning it is it takes the Greek word and it just sort of pronounces it in English. The, 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 the hupo and crito is hypercritical, but it, it also has the idea of a person who wears a mask. In fact, it was used of an actor on stage who would wear a mask. It, they were a hypocrite. It wasn't necessarily a negative thing, but it came to be that because it represented a person who wasn't genuine, a person who was one way, but then they wore a mask and they were a total different way. In other words, it's not the real you. Jesus says, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye. How many times in relationships when there is a conflict do you hear someone say, you know what the problem is in this relationship? It's me. Oh, well, you never hear that. (laughs) Do we? And unfortunately, we seldom think that. If there is a problem in a relationship, we like to do what Adam and Eve did and start pointing to the problem is anywhere else but me. We start with that assumption. Jesus says that is not the place to start. The place to start is by looking at yourself. By looking at yourself. There's a second principle equally as uncomfortable. Seeing someone else's faults should be a cue for us to examine our own lives. Seeing someone else's faults should be a cue for us to examine our own lives. This becomes especially tough when you have a position of authority. I don't know if uh, you have one or if you have had one, but certainly we have all been under authority, whether when it's done right and, unfortunately, often when it's not done well. 
I'll never forget the day when a fellow leader poked his finger in my chest and criticized me for whatever it was. But what I do remember, honestly, I don't even remember what it was he was criticizing me for, but what I do remember was thinking, you don't even see that you do that in spades. Of course, I didn't say that, but it was true. And a position of authority doesn't give us supernatural ability to see the truth. We can still be blind. Pharisees were blind, weren't they? They didn't see it, and they had authority. Our priority in correction, Jesus says, should first be to ourselves. Thomas Akempis said, Be not angry that you cannot make others as you wish them to be, since you cannot make yourself as you wish to be. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, Is he not a hypocrite? to pretend to be so concerned about the other man's eyes, and yet he never attends to his own. Jesus says that seeing the faults of others should be a clue to look at ourselves. He says, first, take the log out of your own eye. When you see a problem, we should. when I see a problem, we should stop and we should look and say, okay, where is this in my life? Now, obviously, I knew that this was going to be happening this week, this lesson. And so this week I have been unusually sensitive to this principle. And it has kept my mouth shut on several occasions. I hate it. It was so hard. There were times that I would have my mouth open. And then I would say, wait a minute. And I would think, all right, where is that in my life? Boy, that's a convicting exercise. It really is. Jesus says, first, examine yourself. But then, let's continue verse 5. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. I wonder if Christ's example here of being in the eye isn't meant to drive home the point even more. When you have something in your eye, think about it, even if it's a speck, a beam, I can't imagine what that would be like, but even a speck, when you've got something in your eye, the world stops, doesn't it? I mean, you don't take one more step until you get it out. Whether you blink and try to get tears going or whether you go in the mirror and you're getting it out, I mean the world stops at a speck in your eye. Imagine that much more if you had a beam. When you have something in your eye, you're very careful, and, uh, and you're very careful to get it out. Christ says you don't judge others without first judging yourself. But when you do judge others, here's the third principle. When correcting another person, be humble. When correcting another person, be humble. Jesus says, first you deal with yourself, and he says, and then you will see clearly. If we fail at self-examination, or maybe I should say it this way, no one who fails at self-examination will succeed at helping someone else. If you fail at self-examination, you're not going to do a good job of trying to help somebody else. 
Listen to what Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 2. 2 Timothy 2, 24, Paul writes, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. 2 Timothy 2.24 and following. Paul says, basically, when you're correcting someone else, be humble. Paul's words are, uh, be kind, be patient, be gentle. Seeing someone else clearly involves humility because you have just taken out a log. Seeing clearly involves admitting that you are not above someone else because you've just taken out a log. When you go to someone to correct them, you do it humbly because you've just corrected yourself. You are, going, you are coming alongside them. You're not above them. You are coming alongside them realizing that you are right there with them in the trenches in the struggle against sin because you just took out a log. So there is this sense of humility that's needed when you talk to someone else about what they've done wrong. And you know what? Most of us, at least in this room, are past the parenting stage. But with grandparenting, it's true. But with parenting, it was also true, wasn't it? There's no exception. There's no relationship that's an exception to this. Just because someone has authority, whether it's a parent, whether it's a boss, whether it's a pastor, whether it's an elder, whether it's anything, a policeman, any authority, especially in the context of personal relationship, this is really the context, but personal relationship, there should be humility. Wait, correction, not harshness. Paul's, word, Paul's words, be kind, be patient, be gentle. You're dealing with a speck in someone's eye. You don't go at it with a crowbar. You're very careful. In fact, so careful sometimes, Jesus goes on to say in verse 6, you don't even get the speck out. You just leave it there. Look at verse 6. Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Sort of seems like a weird verse there, doesn't it? It's like, okay, we've moved on. You know, we're talking about something else. And there is a bit of a transition here, but at the same time, the principle works well coming out of this because Jesus is saying, you don't give what is holy to dogs. Not everyone wants help. Um, and in the context of this, the dogs probably refers to Gentiles. Big principle probably refers to unbelievers. You don't give what is helpful or what is restorative to those who won't receive it. Otherwise, they'll turn and they'll tear you to pieces. And we've experienced that in relationships, haven't we? If you give advice in a context where it isn't going to be received, they turn and tear you to pieces. We've all experienced that. Jesus says sometimes it's better not to say anything if it's in a context where it's not going to be received. And you know, this is true of our world today. Um, the dogs here probably does refer to Gentiles, probably does refer in big context to unbelievers. And think about it. When our world t 
today has a problem with us as Christians? They have a problem with us as Christians because, well, to quote their own favorite verse, do not judge lest ye be judged. They, that's how they see us. They see us as judgers, as finger waggers, as people that run around and say, you shouldn't be doing this and you shouldn't be doing that. And that's what they think Christianity is. Rather than seeing Christianity as a group of people who are loving, who are gracious, who are kind, who keep their mouth shut when it's not appropriate, that's not the Christianity that, that is typically what is seen. Or at least that's not how we're perceived, even though there are many people in the body of Christ who exemplify this very well. Unfortunately, our culture clings to the bad ones or the, or the bad examples. Our world doesn't need to see, doesn't need to hear um, everything that they're doing wrong. They need the gospel. They need the good news. That's what they need more than anything. They don't need to hear that you know, sleeping around is wrong. They don't need to hear that you know, the LBG XYZ is wrong. What they need to hear is that you can't have a relationship with God without Jesus Christ, that we've all sinned. I've sinned. You've sinned. Whether your sin is this sin or that sin, sin is sin, and it keeps us separate from God. But Jesus died on the cross for those sins. And you can have a relationship with God just as you are right now. And then you let the Holy Spirit take all care of that other stuff. But the world just needs the gospel. It needs the good news. It doesn't need our set of rules because then what happens they confuse rules as the way of salvation and not grace so jesus is saying you don't you don't give what's holy to dogs and um i'm trying to think where in first corinthians um i probably should have looked but paul says a very similar thing in first corinthians let's see first corinthians yeah, chapter 5. Oh, well, I'm not going to try to find it. But basically, Paul is saying, look, you don't judge those outside the body. You judge those inside the body. Um, so it's okay to judge as long as you're doing it right. Well, chapter 7, we're in, we read chapter, or verse 6. Look down a little bit at verse 12. Jesus gets toward the end of his sermon and he says, In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. We often call this the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, one translation says. Um, and we're probably more familiar with that phrase. I like the way one little child re repeated it. He says, Do one to others before they do one to you. Unfortunately, that's how it often comes across, isn't it? We're going to get you before you, I'm going to get you before you get me. Jesus says this is the law and the prophets. In fact, Jesus and Paul both said that you could summarize all the Old Testament in the word, the command, love. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is what Jesus is essentially saying here. And everything, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. For this is the law and the prophets. And incidentally, this is exactly what he meant back up in verse 2, where he says, In the way you judge, you will be judged. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. How you want to treat how you want to treat people is how how you want to be treated is how you want to treat other people. 
There's a well-known psychiatrist whose name you'd probably know. I'll just say his name is Paul. If um, I mentioned his name, you'd, you'd probably know who I'm talking about. But he was a very uh, well-known psychiatrist in Christian circles, uh, especially probably 20 or so years ago. He was having trouble with his teenage daughter. In fact, she ran away from home. And their, uh, their relationship was very strained and even estranged. And so they, uh, the daughter decided to go to a counselor. In fact, she went to a Christian counselor and asked if the uh, father would come. Well, he's a well-known psychiatrist. I mean, good grief, he doesn't need to go to a counselor. And so he initially chafed against it, but then decided, well, I guess he'd go. You know, he realized that his daughter running away from home was kind of a, a distress signal. And so he decided that he would go. And he said that the night before the appointment, he couldn't sleep, and he just was tossing and turning, and just started fumbling through the Bible, and he came across Matthew 7. And he read Matthew 7 over and over, and he just began to think over and over about, uh, you know, not judging without first looking at yourself, and he was just deeply convicted by this. So he goes to the session the next morning, and his daughter's sitting there, and the first thing the counselor does is open the Bible and read from Matthew 7, those very verses. And of course, Paul just starts weeping because he realizes there's no way this could be a coincidence. This is certainly the Lord speaking to him. And he said that it really helped him see that they had been judging one another for being selfish while failing to see their own selfishness, failing to apply this very thing. Let me ask you just for a moment to forget everybody else and for a moment and just think about yourself in the quiet of this moment and the honesty of your heart. Maybe for the first time in a long time. We are so busy, even in our quiet time, often we are rushing through to finish the passage or to accomplish something, and we don't have the luxury or take the time to just think about our hearts. So we've got a moment here. I want to challenge you or encourage you to just do that, to just take a moment and think about how you approach relationships. To start today by stopping focusing on the faults of others before focusing on the faults of yourself and myself. Not for self-condemnation at all, but for self-improvement, for self-realization through submission to Christ. Let me share those lessons once again with you. The first was God responds to us according to how we respond to others. Second, Seeing someone else's faults should be a cue for us to examine our own lives. And finally, when correcting another person, be humble. Be humble. I've sort of developed a, a pattern or a reaction of, that I try to do, and that is that when I see a fault, I say a prayer. Meaning, when I see a fault in someone else, whether it's a family member, whether it's a believer, 
whether it's an unbeliever where it's a total stranger at the mall, or whether it's, you know, the idiot that cuts me off on the road. And they're there. See a fault, say a prayer. Because you never know what that person's going through. You never know what kind of life they're having, what kind of struggles they're having. And that what you're seeing in them is a trigger. I think about God revealing Sodom and Gomorrah to Abraham so that Abraham would pray on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah, really on behalf of Lot. You know, in fact, God asked Abraham, shall I reveal, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? And then once Abraham was aware of the potential, he begins to pray. So when you see a fault, say a prayer. And then when you see a fault in someone else, immediately think, where is that in my own life? And then deal with it as honestly as you can. Tough passage, but boy, so essential in our relationship with each other. Let's pray. Our Father, how glad we are that you are so gracious with us. Because in truth, if you dealt with us like we deal with others, good grief, we would not like it. You are immensely gracious, above and beyond what we deserve. Remind us of Christ's great teaching here in the Sermon on the Mount that holds up the standard that he expects of those who follow him. This ethic of the kingdom that we are to emulate. Give us wisdom, Lord, when we interact with others that we would spend, that we would uh, interact with them in the same way that we want you to interact with us. Help us be gracious and that you would be gracious to us. Help us to see their fault as a cue to first examine our own lives. And then if the door is open and you give us that opportunity to speak to that fault, Father, please help us be humble and let it be received. Thank you for Jesus' words here on the Sermon on the Mount, how they changed lives in the first century and how the amazing truth of the scripture recorded here in Matthew continues to change lives, including our own. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.